Welcome to Leadership Dialogues, a podcast for the greater New Orleans region. Leadership Dialogues is produced by the New Orleans Regional Leadership Institute, a nonprofit which provides a variety of nonpartisan platforms to inspire and engage business and community leaders in the greater New Orleans region. My name is Stephen Ruther, and I'm the Executive Director of Norley. Over the last year, we have faced any number of unknowns stemming from pivotal cultural, civic, political, and economic forces. And all of those challenges, of course, were set to the backdrop of coronavirus, a health crisis that has resulted in over 27 million cases and over 468,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. As we launch our second season of Leadership Dialogues, I thought it was important to revisit a Norley alumnus whose expertise and firsthand experiences with COVID are helping to shape our understanding of this global pandemic. For those who might not be familiar with Mark Allendary, here's a brief summary of his bio. Yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Mark Allendary. I'm an infectious diseases physician and epidemiologist uh, here in uh, New Orleans. I work for uh, Access Health Louisiana, which is the state's largest uh, federally qualified healthcare clinics with 40 clinics around the state. Uh, in other words, we do the most Medicaid. We're the largest Medicaid, um, the largest Medicaid clinic system in the state. And I serve as chief uh, innovation officer for Access Health, as well as the medical director for infectious diseases. I have about uh, about three quarters of a million dollars of federal grants that I am responsible for within Access Health Louisiana. I also am the host of the daily a podcast called COVID Noise Filter, which is 10 minutes of COVID information seen through the lens of social, economic, environmental, and racial justice. That uh, podcast is available through all podcast platforms. It's syndicated across the country on Pacifica Radio Network as well, so you may hear it on the radio uh, as well. And lastly, I am founder of WHIV Radio here in New Orleans, which is a radio station dedicated to human rights and social justice and now COVID information. Mark Allen originally joined us in March of 2020, just as our city and state were shutting down to limit the spread of coronavirus. This podcast conversation, which was recorded on February 1st of 2021, builds upon our previous discussion and re-examines what we knew then, what we know now, and what the future may hold for us. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So I wanted to put a little bit of context to our conversation today. I went back and I looked at the original podcast that we had done in the end of March of 2020. And, um, and it was actually a presentation that you gave to our class that we adapted for the podcast. And, um, and that was a very different time. So I looked up in the presentation, which was from March 23rd, 2020, um, there were 35,230 cases of COVID in the United States and 459 deaths. So we're not quite, you know, a year from that point, but looking back at that sort of retrospective, it, it provides sort of stark comparison of what's happened in the course of the year and what we've kind of become, uh, in some cases, numb to. And the transmission rates were being guessed at that point, somewhere between 1.5 and 2.5, with a fatality rate of somewhere between 0.7 and 3.4, which are pretty wide a variation. So kind of with that context of where we were a year ago, um, give us a little bit of an overview of where we are now, starting with perhaps that original strain, which I believe they call the K strain. Oh, right, yeah, that's an old designation. We, you're gonna hear me refer to it as a wild type strain now. So okay. that first strain, you're, you're gonna hear um, biologists or infectious disease doctors or epidemiologists are going to refer to it as the wild type. So that wild type strain is that original strain. And then anything that mutated or, or is a variant is off of that strain, that original strain. So we'll talk about those variants uh, in a moment. Well, I will say this. So I would love to go back and listen to that just to hear what the, what the mindset was uh, of uh, in March. Uh, and uh, I will say this. On January 20th, we had our one-year anniversary in terms of the first case that uh, occurred in the U.S. at that time. Um, and that was case number one. January 20th is also notable uh, for several other things. One is that that was also the date of the, the new administration, the Biden and, and Harris administration, starting uh, as well. And at, um, 
at uh, that uh, to uh, January 20th mark, I don't think anybody would have believed that we would have had something around 25 million cases and 400,000 deaths. Now those, those cases have gone up to 26 point something at this point and the number of deaths are probably anywhere between 440,000, 450,000 deaths, far exceeding World War II levels uh, and, and rapidly not only uh, approaching the 1918 influenza mortality numbers in the US, but we are probably within striking distance of the greatest the greatest event that took the most number of U.S. lives, and that was the Civil War, which is about 750,000. So in terms of the infectious rate uh, or the R0, how we refer to it, I would say we're still pretty close to that number. That, that number still kind of works. I think that the, the R0, if we were to do nothing, in other words, if we were not to change our behaviors, especially with these new viral variants, this 1351 or the B117 um, or the P1, uh, those are probably gonna have R naughts at like three to four. Uh, just to give you an example, HIV has an R naught of like three, Ebola has an R naught of two, measles has an R naught of 19. So one person can, you know, give another person, you know, like measles, let's say that's why it's so highly infectious. One person has it, they can spread it to about 18 other people. That's essentially what the R naught is. And so we are seeing that the R naught is similar, you know, it's either a one with wild type and maybe upwards to three for the new variants. But what we've learned in the past year, and this is really critically important, and, and, and the case is the same for most all other infectious diseases, is that usually one person, uh, the majority of people actually don't transmit the virus. Um, specifically, when and now we're talking about uh, um, coronavirus particularly, but again, this is pretty true amongst the, uh, the spectrum of infectious diseases. Most people don't necessarily transmit illness. It's usually one person who transmit illness to a large group of people, right? So there's usually super spreading people. And we've seen that over the course of the, of the pandemic that usually you've got about 20% of people who are responsible for like 80% of infections. Uh, and that's just the genetic biology. When they talk, they, they may project more of your mouth uh, contents, which we refer to as spittle, which is where the word spit comes from. Uh, but the actual word is spittle, and that's where uh, in the droplets or in the aerosolization of the virus. The other thing that we didn't know probably in March uh, was that the virus was an aerosolized virus now. And we, we've seen that in a number of studies. Um, and I was very early on calling for uh, both the CDC and the WHO. Uh, I, was with, I was part of a group of scientists that we were very early on uh, calling for these organizations to admit uh, and recognize that the virus was aerosolized. And it was very difficult for them to do so because traditionally coronavirus had been thought of as a, uh, a virus that's carried in droplets. So what's the difference between aerosolization and droplets? Droplets are these large, um, you know, if you're talking to somebody um, uh, and it, you, know, you can sometimes see contents leaving their mouth in the form of that spittle, those are typically droplets and those things are heavy. You could see them as maybe like a, a bowling ball. They fall out of the sky very quickly within two to three feet. We double it and say six feet just to be cautious, but it's really two or three feet. Whereas aerosolized contents are the, those droplets as they are remain airborne, if the if the temperature is just right, um, the water content in that droplet will desiccate, will dry, and then what happens is that then it becomes very small, going from a, a let's say a, a bowling ball to the size of the BB. So the effects of gravity are far less, and so you can get a a, a particle to travel a lot longer distance. So that wasn't known in, in the end of March. It's now been documented. That is without question the case. Now, why were we calling for CDC and WHO to make those uh, pronouncements? It was early on, it was very clear to us that, that there was just no way a, uh, a disease uh, like coronavirus that is transmitted through droplets, we would have the number of cases that we were seeing. We were seeing transmission rates so high that droplet transmission would not explain it. It had to have been explained 
only through uh, the use of the, the idea of aerosolization. In terms of mortality rates, the mortality rates have, you know, is likely going to remain consistent. Um, and it's, and I usually use about anywhere, I say 1.5 is usually my guesstimation for a mortality rate. And, and at that time, we just didn't know there weren't enough people to have determined that. But one thing that has become very remarkable is that our uh, understanding of the disease process has changed. Back then in March, we were still treating it as a pneumonia. And now we have changed the way that we think about coronavirus because we've had now a year's worth or almost a year's worth of clinical information that helps physicians make decisions in the hospital. So we don't necessarily intubate everybody anymore. We are very free with our use of, um, of anticoagulants because we know that there's a, an issue with a, a, a proclotting uh, uh, system that in your body that is triggered as a result of having coronavirus. And so the other thing that was a huge, huge boon was the use of steroids and dexamethasone particularly was a huge, huge uh, lifesaver uh, with respect to helping physicians uh, kind of quell down that big uh, uh, so-called uh, cytokine storm uh, that can occur. What happens is that when your body gets revved up to fight an infection, uh, your immune system uh, gets revved up and it has an on off switch. There's no gradual, there's no dimmer, right? It's on or off. So some people, they can flip it on. And with some people, it never gets turned off. And then, then what happens is that you accumulate all this fluid of inflammation and it becomes very problematic. So that dexamethasone really helps bring down your cytokine response. Uh, and so I think that the mortality rates here in the U.S. have gotten a lot better. The problem is with these new viral variants, if we are looking at a mortality rate of 1.5, as we see more infections, we're just going to just see more mortality just because of math. Right. If that number is more or less fixed at 1.5%, if those number of cases increase more and more, just as a result of math, we're going to just end up seeing more, more deaths. Uh, so that's going to be, a, that's quite a, a tragedy. So, you know, I think the last thing I would say between now and then was then we didn't quite understand the degree to which asymptomatic transmission would occur. So I was also very much on that bandwagon that masking was not necessary because initially people were concerned about, they were wearing a mask. They were concerned about whether or not um, they would catch the virus. And, uh, and I bet you in that March 26th lecture that I gave, I probably gave the recommendation to that masking wasn't necessary. And I can see with you smiling that that's probably the case. Um, I know that probably somewhere in, in early, mid to uh, early April, um, I know that I changed my mind. And I know that I changed my mind because I actually had a journalist call me and, uh, and, and uh, was reflecting back on our first interview uh, in that early April, mid-April. And I had actually at that point said, we're going to probably need to start masking here very, very soon because it became clear that, that we're, there was an asymptomatic transmission. We didn't know how high it was. The first indication of asymptomatic transmission came from Dr. Redfield, who was the then director under the previous administration for the CDC. And he estimated it to be about 40%. And that was sometime in like probably late April, early May, there was an estimation of 40%. We now know a year later that asymptomatic transmission accounts for 60% of transmissions. And so what we know now is that masking is single-handedly uh, the most effective way for us to be able to uh, uh, eliminate the virus. Now, we all saw what masking turned into it was unfortunately politicized and so the um the uh so the, the idea of masking our way out of this was not it was not going to be an issue i had actually an editorial that i had published that i actually wrote um, and, and it didn't get published for a couple of weeks because it actually was being released right around the time of the, the protests for uh, in support of black, uh, black lives. 
The editorial didn't get released until probably late May. Um, but in it, I called for universal masking as the most efficient way for us to be able to get out of the, the pandemic. At that point, the masking had not been politicized. Uh, it unfortunately did get so, especially over the summer. Uh, and so we now recognize that next to the vac vaccination process, masking is single-handedly the most important thing we can do. And of course, social distancing. Oh, and then last thing, one last thing. Sorry, Stephen. The one more thing that I think is so important that we know now now that we didn't know in March was that the virus is not transmitted through surfaces. It's not transmitted through fomites. We were doing a lot of like the sterilization. We were like cleaning things and really going through the process of making sure that surfaces and counters and high touch public places like elevator buttons or handrails, all of that stuff you know, and listen, as an infectious disease doctor, I love that. You know, I'm very conscious of my hands. I'm a compulsive hand wash. I love hand washing so much, Stephen. I actually went to the birthplace and death place of the guy who invented hand washing, Dr. Ignai Semmelweis in uh, Budapest in Hungary. That's how committed I am to hand washing. So while I love the hand washing, we now recognize that the hand washing and the, the cleaning and all that stuff is really, that doesn't really do anything. That the most important thing are avoiding crowds, socially distance and wearing masks. And then of course, vaccinating as well. So let me ask, have we seen with some of these newer variants where the, and obviously I understand the mortality rate might have uh, decreased because we, we have better medical interventions and we understand what we're dealing with better as, as a process of learning over the last year. But is there any difference in, um, for lack of a better word, the strength of these uh, variants? Uh, are some of the new ones weaker or stronger? Uh, obviously there's a potentially different transmission rate, but do they actually impact people differently? Right, right. So let me start with the theoretical and then, and then we can talk about what we've seen so far. And these are fairly new variants. We haven't seen a whole lot. So for the most part, a virus does not want to kill its host. It's not in the, from an evolutionary perspective, it's not in a virus's best interest to kill its host. In fact, it wants to keep its host alive so the virus can transmit from person to person as much as possible. Uh, in HIV, uh, if left untreated, HIV will kill its host in 10 years. But that's certainly plenty of time for somebody to be able to transmit virus, right? In Ebola, if left untreated, the virus will kill its host very rapidly in about two weeks, right? Uh, almost exclusively, right? Um, now, with, uh, uh, with coronavirus, the, the idea of a virus having a higher level of transmissibility and having a higher level of virulence. So the word that we're looking for is when we talk about, you know, if the virus is more dangerous or is it more lethal, the word there is virulence. So can't, do, do viruses evolve to become more infectious? Yes. Do viruses evolve to become more virulent? Yes. Do they evolve to become more infectious and virulent? Typically not necessarily the case. Thankfully, thankfully for, for humans, we finally caught a break. And that's just a universal kind of viral, for the most part, truth. You don't have viruses that are highly lethal and highly, um, and highly infectious, thankfully. And the reason is, is that it would require too much energy energy that the virus would have to expend to become, to be very, very infectious and to be very virulent. So, so that's just a general virology, just general, you know, Zen moment. That's just a moment of truth and clarity. Now, with respect to what's happening with coronavirus, we are seeing some signals that the, what we refer to as the South African variant or B1351, B1351 just like we wouldn't want something to be called the New Orleans variant. Uh, variant. Uh, South Africa doesn't want to be known as the South African variant and Brazil doesn't want to be known as the Brazilian variant. So you'll hear me refer to the one out of the UK as 117, out of South Africa as 1351, and out of uh, Brazil as P1. But um, the 1351 that emerged out of South Africa does appear to have uh, people who have that variant um, do have higher viral loads of virus. And higher viral loads do portend to uh, more severe symptoms, so symptom severity, which could theoretically lead to higher levels of mortality, although we haven't seen that yet. 
But we have seen that people with the 1351 virus do have higher viral loads, which again does portend to potential uh, symptom severity. So what, which variants have we seen here? <laughs> we have three. We have three. We probably have more than three right now. So so the, the, the virus is being, um, is being forced to evolve just through natural selection, just through the way that evolution works and through natural selection. So the virus, all these different variants are all evolving with very similar, with a very similar characteristic, and that is that spike protein. So we know that the virus is round and it has all these spikes that stick off of it. it that gives it its name, coronavirus, the crowned virus. Those spike proteins are now shifting about 20 degrees. And that 20 degree shift in rotation is the difference between like taking a key and putting it into a lock. And you kind of have to wiggle it around a little bit to get it to slide all the way in before you can kind of open it versus a key that is an old key that you've been using for a long time. All the edges have been smoothed out. So it just slips right into the lock and opens, right? That 20 degree shift in that, in that protein spike protein makes it fit into the receptors of the cells that the virus is going to infect more effectively. So it's like a key fitting into a lock much more smoothly, and it's able to infect that cell much more effectively now. And all of those, and this is where it gets a little confusing, all of that, that shifting of 20 degrees is generally referred to as the B117 mutation, okay? But the first place we saw it was out of the UK. Right. So the UK just used that as the general moniker. But we're seeing it now in Brazil. We're seeing it in South Africa. We're seeing it in Nigeria. We saw two different cases in Columbus, uh, Ohio, uh, as well. They all have that 20 degree shift. We can't all refer to them as B117, but that's generally the shift in the in the in that spike protein that they all have. So what we have seen here in the the, the, the vaccines do work against the virus that we refer to as the B117, in other words, the one that emerged out of the UK. But what we've also seen evidence is a virus that has emerged out of Brazil and of South Africa here in the US. And those viruses also have that shift in that, that spike protein, but they picked up a couple other mutations along the way. And it's a, those other mutations that are somewhat problematic, including not being um, that those viruses tend to be a bit resistant to the vaccines that we have seen. And I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, in a moment. So in answer to your question, essentially, we have seen the new uh, viral variants here in the US. We have seen it here in uh, in Louisiana, but I will be very, very clear. And this is just, this is just being honest and, and I got to call it like I see it. Unfortunately, the US is not very good at genetic surveillance. We're not. We're like number 32 behind like Slovenia, you know, uh, and, and no, I'm no, no kidding. Like some some of these Eastern European countries that we're not necessarily would think of having strong public health tools, we are significantly behind. Whereas the UK is number one in genetic surveillance, and that's how they were able to rapidly identify that B117 strain, and they had that that very severe lockdown. And over the weekend, data is starting to emerge now that that very strong lockdown that they've had for a very long time is actually beginning to show benefits in that they were able to significantly retard the uh, transmission of that more infectious virus. Now, here in the U.S., we've been relying on secondary or tertiary tools to try to identify these other variants, but I assure you that they're here. There's no question about it. We just haven't seen them, and the, the little bit of noise we do here, that's quite literally the tip of the iceberg where majority of the cases are as of yet underwater and not visible to the naked eye. So if you could, I've, I've actually never heard that term before, genetic surveillance. It, could you define that a little bit? And what would be the reason would it be cases of universal health care versus privatized health care? Why would other countries have a, a better practice of engaging in genetic surveillance? I'll start with that first, and then I'll explain genetic surveillance. Um, I think the reason why our genetic surveillance is, is lacking is that we just have a 
decades of underfunding in public health infrastructure. The UK evaluates, they do genetic surveillance on 10% of all of their strains, and we do genetic surveillance on only 0.5%. Again, this is as a result of lack of funding and just decreased spending on, on public infrastructure, on decreased uh, spending on, on uh, public health, leave it to the states to, to fund these sorts of things, and the states just are not in a position to, to, to fund, unfortunately, strong genetic surveillance. And genetic surveillance essentially is basically every virus has a fingerprint in the form of what its genome looks like, the, the basic genetic infrastructure of the virus. And so every virus has its own fingerprint and genetic surveillance is just basically randomly selecting viruses from a population. So the, let's say the Louisiana Department of Health gets, you know, a thousand samples a day. They may take random 15 of them and look at the genetics of that virus, or they'll send them to the CDC and they look at the genetics of the virus and they would expect the virus to look like this, the wild type, you know, but, you know, but now they're seeing viruses that look like this, and this would be the, mu the mutated virus. Uh, and then once they see that there's that difference, then they could try to guesstimate how did it go from looking like this to looking like this? You know, there would be a series of steps and mutations and they would be able to document how that would work. And I would strongly recommend that everybody be very much on guard uh, with respect to these variants, because what we have been doing in the behavior is that we have essentially adopted over the course of the past year was largely due to the wild type virus, the one that had, let's say, a R-naught of 1.5, right? That, 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 that ability to reproduce or to uh, infect another person. But now we're going to be dealing with a more infectious virus that may have an R-naught or, or an infectivity rate of three. So we just have to become even better with respect to having these uh, uh, being masked. Uh, and, and I actually am telling people to double mask uh, as well. And I think that double masking is gonna be very important. Uh, and the idea of large events, I mean, we're seeing here locally, uh, of course, it's it should be no surprise that we're seeing French Quarter Fest is of course been rescheduled um, and uh, Jazz Fest has been rescheduled uh, as well. Uh, and I'm hopeful that we'll start to see some sort of sense of quote unquote, you know, normalcy or pre COVID normalcy that hopefully will come and fall so that we can have, you know, these little, you know, jazz fests and French quarter fests and maybe even have like a weekend of parades, uh, who knows, to, to help celebrate uh, a Mardi Gras. But uh, there's no question that with moving forward over the next couple months are going to be very, very critical. These new viral variants are incredibly infectious, far more so than we have seen over the course of the past year. And really the, the four things that you can do to protect yourself um, continue to be uh, masking. And in this case, I'm calling for double masking. Uh, continue to be of avoidance and social distancing, avoiding crowds and also vaccination when your turn comes up. So let's jump right into the vaccination component. And then I want to bring that back because I think understanding the longer timeline as this thing continues to mutate and we see more and more variants as it evolves, you know, the sort of combination of how uh, the vaccines uh, in conjunction with all the sort of behavioral things that you just mentioned can slowly uh, help us to manage um, coronavirus year in, year out and kind of understand the longer term trends of that. But let's get into the vaccinations first. So I, I know there's been a lot of, um, I guess, questions about, and for those who are in the scientific and medical communities, praise for how quickly the vaccinations came out, which, you know, my not being an expert in that field from, field, from what I can understand, it's a superhuman feat that we've been able to do in such a short period of time, really tantamount to some of the, the larger things that we've done in modern history with technology. So talk about the actual vaccination process and, and what it means. And then what vaccinations, because we have the two key ones, the Pfizer and, and the Moderna, I believe, locally, and Johnson Johnson just recently announced that they're getting closer with theirs. Provide some context for the process of the vaccines getting approved and where we are with them. Absolutely. And it's such a good question. So the, the, the first thing that we need to recognize is that, that yes, these vaccines happened in, a, uh, in record time, let's say. Um, but 
it should, you know, and probably one of the biggest concerns that I address on a regular basis when I am addressing folks is people say, well, these vaccines happen too fast. It's, it's hard for me to trust these vaccines because it happened so fast. And I explained to folks that that's not necessarily the case. They didn't necessarily happen fast. They just happened on the time scale that was appropriate for the vaccines to happen. Now, let me give you an example. We're in the middle of an epidemic. It's a pandemic. We can find coronavirus, just walk out the door and look around, we'll find people with coronavirus. When you look at a vaccine like the, the new shingles vaccine and before that, the new human papillomavirus, also known as HPV. Of course, the shingles vaccine prevents shingles, the HPV uh, vaccine prevents HPV infection, which leads to cervical cancer in women and rectal carcinoma in both men and women, okay? So if you give somebody who's 15 years old uh, a HPV vaccine now, you're gonna have to wait 20 years, 15 years to see whether or not that vaccine was prevent, you know, prevented cervical cancer or rectal cancer, right? I mean, the same thing with shingles. You give somebody shingles vaccine today, it's gonna take 20 years to evaluate whether or not they developed shingles. So those vaccines are also developed in the sense that it just takes a long time to, to determine whether or not what it is you're vaccinating for develops. Right. And sometimes those disease processes take years to develop, as opposed to developing a vaccine in the middle of a pandemic where everybody has got, you know, it's very easy to find, you know, so the, the first, the two vaccines, the first one was the Pfizer that we heard about, and then the Moderna vaccine. It was a combined 70. 5,000 people were uh, evaluated with either the vaccine or the control uh, uh, product. And what they found was that there was a, both the Pfizer and the Moderna found that there was a 95% efficacy rate. And based on that, which is tremendous, by the way, that that is as high as the HPV vaccine and that's as high as the measles vaccine. So those are the two vaccines that we have that really that have the best efficacy rates uh, associated with them. And so the, the, the fact that they were developed so quickly also speaks to the new technology that had been developed as a result of this. And really a lot of this comes down to Dr. Kizmikia Corbet, uh, who was the, uh, the brains behind the operation. She was 29 years old when uh, about five years ago when she, she had her own lab at the NIH, completely unheard of. Uh, if you don't know who Dr. Kizmiki Corbet is, please look her up. Uh, she's really, a, uh, she's what I refer to her as the new American hero. Uh, she's a scientist of color uh, and uh, uh, grew up in, in North Carolina and uh, was noted to be uh, a prodigy scientist and really got her PhD at a very young age uh, and was able to develop, when she came to the NIH, she was like, you guys step aside. We need to redo the way we're doing vaccines. And what she did is she developed this platform using mRNA. And so what is mRNA? So, well, first of all, let me remind you that Moderna tells you what the vaccine is because it's in the name. Moderna has an M and it ends with RNA, Moderna. So that was how Moderna vaccine uh, was uh, essentially named. So what happened was the um, you have, we're made out of human beings, we're made out of DNA. And our DNA basically captures information that makes our body, our body run. And each cell has a little uh, nucleus, that's the brains of a cell. And inside that nucleus is where the, the DNA is kept. Now you can't just keep taking pieces of the DNA out of the cell to develop this or to make this or whatever, whatever the local need of that unique cell is. So the, the, the way that the body, and this has been not just human bodies, but bacteria, blades of grass, every, every element has this, has the same, um, uh, every living entity has the same scientific structure behind it that to go from having DNA to creating whatever protein needs to be created, to get from that, you use a messenger that takes your DNA and, tr and takes it to the 3D printer of the body, which is called a ribosome. And the ribosome reads the instructions off of the, that messenger RNA uh, to develop whatever protein the body is actually needing. So you can't take the DNA um, from the nucleus and run it directly through the ribosome. It just doesn't work that way. So mRNA is basically the, the mechanism that gets information from a DNA 
to a ribosome. Again, the ribosome is the 3D printer of a cell, of the, of the body. And so the, the, the mRNA runs through the ribosome and it kicks out the protein, whatever it is that are on the instructions of that mRNA. So the vaccine, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, both work in that they are injected into your arm and the muscle cells immediately take up that mRNA. That mRNA is run through the ribosome and, the, and then that mRNA disappears. It's like the Snapchat of genetic material. It's just gone in a second, right? Once it's read, it's gone. And what happens is that it, the, the, the instructions for the mRNA are to create the spike protein the same spike protein that is on the surface of the coronavirus, except that our bodies are making it. So we, this is about as organic a vaccine as you can get because our bodies are actually making that spike protein. So the mRNA, the information that's on the mRNA is the information on how to make that spike protein. So we develop the spike protein, those spike proteins get pushed to the surface of the cell and then once it gets to the surface of the cell, they get into the bloodstream, which then triggers an immune response. So the reason why this vaccine was able to be produced so fast, if you will, was because one, we had the genetic information of this virus by January 6th. The Chinese had released the genetics of the virus. So once they determined where in the entire genome, I think there's 22,000 bases in, in, in the coronavirus, they were able to figure out where the spike, where what's parts codes for the spike protein. Once they were able to determine what part codes for the spike protein, they were able to make millions and millions of copies of it, put them into um, uh, uh, put them into the the vials in the form of a vaccine, and uh, and then now our bodies have become spike producing factories as well as immune as well as responding to the uh, uh, triggering our immune system so it's really it's a brilliant way of creating vaccines and it will be the new way by which all vaccines are going to be created moving forward so it's really fascinating the uh, Johnson and Johnson uses an adenovirus uh, vaccine with DNA so more or less the same thing except using DNA to do it and then the Novavax vaccine which I'm not sure why nobody's talking about because the Novavax vaccine was also made by operation warp speed. It had 90% efficacy rate. The uh, Johnson & Johnson has 72% efficacy. These are all still excellent uh, efficacy rates. Let's just be very clear about it. Um, but the Novavax uh, also is a, is a two-dose separated by 21 days. Now, the problems that we've been having with these vaccines have been distribution because the Pfizer needs to be kept in uh, sub-freezing sub temperatures of something like minus 70 degrees Celsius, the Moderna in minus 20, the Novavax can actually just be kept in a refrigerator. So we are getting better with being able to get these vaccines uh, delivered. The Novavax vaccine, by the way, uses nanoparticles in how it creates th that, uh, that vaccine. What they do with that vaccine is they take uh, the spike uh, protein, they, uh, the DNA, they take the DNA of the spike protein, they insert it into a, what's called a baculovirus. That baculovirus then infects moth cells, and then the moth cells are instructed to create the spike proteins. And then what the manufacturers do is they take those spike proteins as a collective whole, and they create nanoparticles out of them. And then those nanoparticles are then uh, injected into subjects uh, along with a other substance from a, 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 a uh, what's called the bark, um, it's called the soap bark tree. And uh, that substance from the soap bark tree creates an immune response and it, it kind of triggers the immune response. So we were seeing all sorts of really interesting technologies that are being utilized uh, to uh, create vaccines. Now, probably the one thing that I get the most about with respect to the vaccines is the safety concerning the vaccines. And all I can say is that these vaccines, without question, now we haven't seen the safety data as, as of today's recording for Novavax and Johnson & Johnson. All we've seen, the Novavax came out with a press release this past Wednesday, 
right? And then Johnson Johnson came out with their press release this past Friday. Now, in the past, we would have never accepted a press release for uh, in, in lieu of the actual data that was published in a scientific journal like the New England Journal, which is typically where manufacturers will go to publish information like this would be in the New England Journal. So I suspect that those will be coming. So we don't know any of the safety data associated with Novavax or Johnson Johnson, but there is there was nothing so remarkable uh, that 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 they stopped the uh, that they stopped the uh, vaccine. There was a moment with Johnson and Johnson where there was um, transverse myelitis, which is inflammation of the spinal column, but it was determined that it had nothing to do with the actual vaccine itself. So they were able to go back to the trials. Um, so, but what we do know of the Moderna and the Pfizer is at this point we vaccinated um, uh, as of Friday we vaccinated over 22 million people in the U.S. Um, and uh, as of uh, Friday, we vaccinated globally uh, over uh, 50 million people, somewhere upwards of 60 million people. And there have been no there have been no complications that we've seen. Of course, we've seen some uh, anaphylactic reactions, which is uh, a reaction in which you have a swelling of your tongue. Um, and your mouth and your lips is referred to as anaphylaxis. Those can be deadly if not treated. There's been nobody who's died as a result of anaphylactic reactions. It's a very rare event uh, that actually occurs uh, and it's treated very easily with something that's called an EpiPen um, that uh, at every vaccine site, there's an EpiPen in the event that there's an anaphylactic reaction. It's just a matter of just giving that EpiPen and that is the definitive cure for anaphylaxis. So if I understand this right also, because obviously I think a key concern or not concern, but question moving forward is how effective will these vaccines be um, against the, the future variants and the current variants that we're seeing? Um, what you said earlier is that the variants were largely defined by shifts in the angle of the spiked proteins. And if the vaccines produce the same proteins to help your body defend against it, these should theoretically be able to deal with at least most of the variants, if not most of the future variants that we're seeing, correct? Yes, absolutely. But if this had been December and you and I had had this conversation, I would have said, yeah, it's very likely that, that these vaccines are going to be protective against these new variants that are emerging. And they are against what emerged out of the UK. But I also mentioned that we are seeing emergence out of South Africa and Brazil, that they picked up some other mutations along the way as well. And it's those other mutations that are referred to as E484K. Uh, the E484K is particularly problematic because for some reason it deactivates the antibodies uh, by anywhere between six to eight folds. So let's say that's with that is with um, with uh, uh, vaccine immunity. With natural immunity, it can be up to thirty-three folds. So there's something about the uh, so by natural immunity that means that you got COVID and your immune system uh, you just have a natural Im immunity to COVID now because of your uh, uh, because of your exposure to COVID. Uh, but vaccine immunity refers to immune system that has been generated, uh, or immunity that has been generated as a result of the vaccine. So we don't know exactly why it, it's able to deactivate antibodies between six to eight fold, but it does. So when you look at the Novavax, so last week was very, very notable. There was a lot of information. I was reading all week long last week, trying to, ca trying to catch up on each one of those um, uh, studies. And what we saw last week were four very, very specific studies. Uh, one came from Moderna, one came from Moderna and Pfizer, and then two, uh, and then the Novavax, and then the, um, and then the uh, Johnson Johnson. So I'll explain each one. They were all the same. So what we saw was that Moderna showed that there was a, again, there was somewhere between a six to eight fold decrease in the uh, efficacy of the Moderna vaccine with these new viral variants that have the 484K uh, mutation in it. Then Moderna and Pfizer did a joint, they showed the same results. And then Novavax showed that their vaccine was significantly less 
effective in the South African population, which was presumably due to the viral variants. And the same thing with Johnson & Johnson showed that it had a 52% efficacy from their South African population, again, likely reflecting the 484K uh, certainly the B1351 mutation uh, that we've talked about. So the I think in 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 all they both Pfizer, uh, in fact all four of the companies Pfizer, uh, Moderna, Novavax, and uh, Johnson Johnson all came out with statements last week that said that they're already working on booster doses. Uh, in other words, doses that are specific to these viral variants. And it may be that this may be an on, you know, this may be an ongoing uh, situation where the virus shifts. And because of these very easy to produce mRNA platforms, it'll be very easy for us to be able to stay ahead of these viruses because one, we've all been vaccinated, so we all have some immunity to it. Whereas at the beginning of the last year, nobody had seen this virus, nobody had immunity to it. Now we do have immunity to it through the form of vaccine or previous infection. And so ideally, even as these variants become uh, more common or they become the dominant strain, which we will expect that they will become, uh, we have all at least had some immunity to it that it hopefully will, they will not become as problematic as it may seem here up front. But just like we get a regular flu shot, I would not be surprised if moving forward, you started to see mRNA vaccines that are both flu and coronavirus uh, uh, together to have a, a, common, uh, a common vaccine for the two of those viruses there. Under the assumption, the hopefully positive assumption that we could get to that point and it's managed in that capacity. Um, what is the timeline? I know you said as of Friday, there were 22 million. I looked earlier at a graph that I saw that showed, uh, I believe it was over the last 10 days, there's been, uh, they've been keeping a rolling average and it's been approximately 1.6 million people per day who are receiving the vaccination. Realistically, to the best of your ability to prognosticate this, when do we think we'll reach within the United States uh, and globally potentially um, some sort of herd immunity where we could resume some sort of normal life? You spoke earlier about being able to attend festivals and, and getting some of our cultural, social aspects of our lives back in the fall. Um, and obviously there are huge logistical issues here and, and you know, it's going to be much easier for some developed nations as opposed to undeveloped nations to be able to have access to these medicines and to the vaccines. What's the timeline that we're looking like moving forward? So I'm afraid that um, in, you know, in 10 months from now, uh, we're going to look back onto this uh, interview. And so I'm just going to just say, hello, Mark Allen in the future. This was my best guess. So I'm going to try to make this guess. So when Stephen interviews me again uh, and he quotes me, I'm hoping that this is going to be as good a quote as, as could be. So this is totally shooting from the hip, of course. Um, we are on track. The, the president uh, did uh, want to see something like 100, uh, a million doses a day for 100 days. Um, that's great. In 100 days, that would mean about roughly a little less than a third of the nation would be vaccinated. That's not enough to... To, to get to herd immunity, which essentially just means anywhere between 60 to 70 to even 80% of the population is vaccinated to the point that the, vac the virus can't sustain itself within the population. So just like we had with testing, and I would love to go back to the March 26th interview that we did or lecture, just to hear what we were saying, what I was saying about testing then. Uh, but testing was very difficult to get off the ground. We had problems, the CDC actually in a very, very unusual misstep, not a very rare thing for them to do, uh, had a contamination in one of their controls uh, and it made, uh, we, were, we were behind with testing. And also the US just, for reasons that are unclear to me, refused to take the testing that the WHO uh, was offering. 
So it took a while, but now we have kiosks where you can just walk into a kiosk and just get a test and do it yourself and then have, drop the sample off and you get your results in, in 24 hours or 48 hours. So the, as ubiquitous as testing is now, it took a while to develop those logistical uh, channels uh, to, to, to happen. I know that in Mar on March 26th, when we did our, our talk, I had probably already run the first, um, I was the medical director, I was probably talking about it at the large testing site that we did at Mahalia Jackson. Um, and that was a big logistical challenge because that was the first federal testing site that had opened. Uh, and it was just very complicated and difficult because we were, it was so new at it. And again, this takes me back to my previous comment when we talked about genetic surveillance, that the, the country has not invested in public health infrastructure. It just hasn't. And I hope that change is moving forward. Uh, I certainly will be part of a group of public health practitioners that will call for that. And I'll also try to advise uh, and try to help create a stronger public health infrastructure. But right now, it, it, it's going to take a while for these vaccines to be uh, uh, to uh, to hit the uh, to, to hit the market, if you will. The Johnson Johnson vaccine will be helpful because that is a one-shot vaccine that doesn't require refrigeration. The Novavax vaccine is going to be great, also doesn't require refrigeration. So that also uh, will be uh, somewhat easier to manage. It's, it is a two-dose vaccine, so that still means that we need to get people back for a second dose. But I would say we're going to be seeing people be generally vaccinated. I'm saying by the end of spring, probably early summer is when, uh, let's say, uh, I'm a 52-year-old male. I, you know, I, I, of course, am vaccinated because I'm a healthcare provider. I'm on the front lines of COVID. But if I were not a physician, a 52-year-old male would expect to be vaccinated probably in the end of spring. That's very likely to be the case. And so it takes about a month if you get the two dose vaccines, it's gonna take a month between dose one and dose two, and then you have to wait another month to have your immune system to be fully responsive to it. So I would say, uh, given that we probably are looking at fall, I would say we would. I would say that by Thanksgiving of next year, that we could expect to be with our families for Thanksgiving and holidays, uh, which we weren't able to do this year. Well, thank you. That's wonderful. And certainly, I'm sure we're all hoping for that. And um, that's a good, uh, a good benchmark in the timeline to shoot for. Uh, I want to thank you for your time today and your expertise. As always, you have so much experience and, and you're so involved at, at really the ground level in so many of these discussions and in the practice of what you do. We truly appreciate your time. Let everyone know what's a good way to follow. I know you mentioned in your introduction, your uh, daily um, the, the daily podcast is called COVID Noise Filter. It's 10 minutes of, of daily COVID information, but again, seen specifically through a lens of social, economic, environmental, racial justice. Uh, my colleague and I that I do that with, we also do a daily Facebook show as well. Uh, we've been doing that since March, uh, and that's also called COVID Noise Filter, just to confuse everybody. Um, that's a one-hour daily show done Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Tuesdays are my telemedicine clinic days, and so those days can sometimes be busy, so we stop doing Tuesdays. But uh, those are uh, one hour. Those are live. We interact with our our um, our, our audience, uh, and uh, those have become very popular uh, as well. Uh, and uh, that I present daily epidemiological data. So if you really are interested in COVID and you're interested in real uh, discussions and really what's happening on a regular day-to-day -day basis in terms of numbers, that's a place to go to as well. Dr. Mark Allendary on Facebook. Uh, also is a great place uh, that has information as well. And I just also, I would not, uh, I, I would not be speaking to a gnarly group of people if I didn't remind everybody that 2014 was the most popular and best liked class ever. So there you go. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. And um, thanks for taking the time. Have a Thank great day. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Leadership Dialogues. We'd like to thank our annual sponsors whose support helped make Norley programs available in the greater New Orleans region. Our pinnacle sponsor is Entergy, 
Our legacy of leadership sponsor is Atmos. Our support sponsors are Jones Walker and Gamble Communications. Our stakeholder sponsors are Iberia Bank, Metairie Bank, the Miro Foundation, the Port of New Orleans, and Home Bank. And our recognized partner is Greater New Orleans, Inc.